This morning, I'm excited to introduce to you uh, somebody that I can call a new friend, uh, somebody that's come to, to serve as our guest teacher today, a guy that I met uh, when we came a part of this new thing, a partnership, again, just uh, about a year ago. Kim Hammond is a pastor, a church planter uh, from Australia. He and his wife and their three children moved here to the United States about 18 months ago. Uh, where he serves uh, as the director, the national director of a group called Forge America, which he might talk a little bit more about, but also uh, serves as a pastor on staff of Community Christian Church uh, in Chicago. And Community Christian Church is a growing church with campuses all throughout the Chicagoland area. Kim serves on staff there as the director of missional imagination, which can we just say is probably the coolest title uh, we've ever heard before, Uh, but the director of missional imagination, but also involved with leadership development. And and here's what that means. Kim is passionate about helping people like you and me understand who we are, what God has called us to do, the gifts that he's given to us, and what it means to walk out of this door on a Sunday morning and say, I'm going to go do that now. And we've been talking about that a little bit over the past couple of weeks. And as I was thinking about who could contribute to this series, who could really come in with a lot of fire and a lot of passion and help us understand even more what that looks like on a day-to-day basis, I couldn't help but think about Kim Hammond as I heard him speak in December and again in April down in Orlando at a conference. Again, Kim has a lot of passion. Just this morning, I picked him up at the, the motel and he was eating there at the Continental Breakfast. And I just saw him interacting with people that he didn't know. Uh, again, just taking advantage of every moment. Who can I build a relationship with? Who can I share Jesus Christ with? And so uh, will you join me in welcoming Kim Hammond here with us this morning? Well, it's so wonderful to be here. I love your country. I moved all the way from Australia to uh, come to this beautiful country. We were the only family in Australia that used to celebrate July 4th. We used to let our fireworks, wave our flag, and then go back inside while people laughed at us. But no more, because we're here now, and we can let our fireworks in Indiana. Because you can let fireworks off here, right? That's pretty cool. I said to my friend who will be here later on, uh, who drove me, um, I said, we should buy some fireworks. He's like, that's illegal. I was like, oh, okay, we'll wait then. But uh, that's pretty cool to be here. Um, This is a great church. And I get to visit churches all over America, in fact, all over the world. And... uh, I can tell what a good church is and what's not. And, uh, you know, this is a good church. It's got a great team. What an awesome facility. But more importantly, you have an amazing leader. You know, um, sometimes we take for granted kind of how good our pastors are. And let me tell you, there are a lot of really bad pastors out there. Boy, there's some shocking stories. One day I'll write a tell-all book and maybe not. Okay, and... Uh, But let me tell you, I want you just to honor your pastor right now this morning, someone who loves your church deeply. And, you know, we don't often do this enough, but I just think when God brings a good leader into our midst, someone who really loves the body of Christ. And for me, I meet pastors all the time who complain about their people or who who just are tired and worn out. I've never, you know, when I meet someone who absolutely is committed to the body of Christ, is full of energy, loves the church. I just think they should be honored. Can you honor Paul just this morning for a moment? Good on you, mate. You're a good boy. Weddings. Who remembers their wedding? Who's been to a wedding that you wish, wow, this is terrible? I don't even want to be here. I don't think the bride wants to be here. Like, I mean, have you been to a wedding that's just so boring? You, you, you ladies know what I'm talking about, don't you? Because you're laughing. It wasn't your own. It was another wedding. 
Oh, okay. You know, sometimes we go to these weddings, and they're a mixed bag, aren't they, sometimes? I mean, have you ever been to a birthday party or a wedding where they're dr- you, you don't really know the person getting married, and they, they give two hours of speeches, and you're like, oh, this is painstakingly boring. It's like a bad sermon, right? It goes on forever, or a bad lecture at school. Are you, are you with me? Right? And then you could go to a wedding where you, where you know everyone and you laugh at every story. Like someone tells something, you're like, that is the funniest thing I was there. And no one else is laughing. Because they're all like, don't know the story. And I'm Greek, if you haven't noticed. I mean, people always get confused. I thought you said you're Australian. Well, my parents, my mum was born in Egypt. But her heritage is Greek. That's why if you look very closely, I have one eyebrow. It's all the way along. And I'm the person they stop at the gate to say all the time, so you can go through faster. That's randomly checked. There's no randomly checked. There's a beeper for all us Arabs. And uh, and anyway, so I so my, so Greek wedding they smash plates, not because they're angry at you Americans, but because it's a part of celebration. Who's ever been to a Greek wedding? One lady, two maybe. Okay, did they smash plates at your wedding? The wedding you went to? It's awesome. And they're not like expensive plates. They get these plates and in a sign of celebration, they smash them on the ground. And everyone with OCD freaks out, thinks, oh my gosh, why are they doing that? But it's actually a sign of celebration. Weddings can be the ushering in of something new. The Bible talks lots about weddings. In fact, the Old Testament tells us that the Messiah would come through a wedding banquet. And people had all sorts of ideas where that would be. You know, have you ever seen, just recently we saw um, the royal wedding. Who watched that? Come on. And if you're a man, you put your hand up, that's a little weird. No, I'm joking. I watched it. Who saw the royal wedding? Come on. It was a big deal, wasn't it? I mean, it was a pretty big deal. Like, that's a state, that's a national wedding. And people sort of thought that Jesus would come at a wedding banquet that would be something similar. Not maybe necessarily a wedding but some sort of celebration that happened in Jerusalem at the center. So it's really interesting today. I want to talk to you about our heart for our neighborhood and for our neighbors. I want you to look at John chapter 2. I want to read it to you. You don't have to have a Bible this morning. I want to tell you the story because I think it's fun to hear the story about the Bible. So let me tell you the story from from John chapter 2. So we have the story in John chapter 2, which begins with a wedding. And it's Mary, Jesus' mother, who's invited along to this wedding. So she says to her son, you should come along. So Jesus brings a couple of his mates along, his friends, and they go off to a wedding. Now, the first difference about an Arabic or a Middle Eastern wedding to an Anglo wedding is that our weddings go for how long? A day? Right? You have a wedding reception, a ceremony and a reception. You might have a dinner before, the night before. But an Arabic or a Middle Eastern wedding in Jesus' day, and it's very similar today, went for days, sometimes up to seven days. And at, at those days and uh, those days and age, they didn't have Coca-Cola products. There wasn't, um, uh, there wasn't. You couldn't go and get that non-alcoholic apple juice that you can get at Walmart. There was water, and there was wine, and this is how it worked. When a father gave birth to a daughter, him and his wife. And he, was, he initially got over the disappointment of having a daughter because for Jewish men, they wanted a son who could carry on the work and the name. 
So when he got over the initial disappointment, women were second-class citizens in that day and age. He would draw off one barrel of wine on her birth. He would stick it in the cellar. And then on her birthday, he would draw off another barrel of wine. And he did that every year until she got married. So on her wedding day, how many barrels of wine do you think they had? Anyone want to guess? About 15. Who said that? Well done. About 15. That's about how old they were when they gave their young daughters away to get married. If he was a good dad. And then they would start the wedding. Which barrel of wine would they get out for the first day? Anyone want to guess? The oldest. Because it tasted the nicest. Everyone was still sober. So they would take the oldest barrel on day one and people would say, you are an incredible host. This wine is aged 15 years. This is delicious. We host the generosity of the Father. Now, day seven, which wine are they drinking? The one that was drawn off on their last birthday. Because who cares what it tastes like after seven days, right? It can taste like vinegar. People are drinking wine. It doesn't matter. Now, this is not a sermon about alcohol. Just so in case you get a freak out now. I want no letters. Or emails. If there are, send them all to Paul. Um, but it is a story about generosity. So, so Mary and, and the women are sitting where they actually store the wine. Kind of the, in the cool part of the, of the house where they would have hosted the wedding. And it's like day three or four and they've run out of wine. The Bible doesn't tell us why. But there really is only two logical reasons you could run out of wine at a wedding that serves water and why? Can you tell me what the first reason is? The father didn't put enough barrels away, right? Birthday seven, he didn't care. Birthday eight, they had a bad crop. Birthday nine, he did. Birthday ten, eleven, he forgot. I mean, he's just a neglectful father. It's the day of this great celebration for the whole community. Because it isn't weddings like us where we come along, we haven't seen Aunt Mary for three years. They live in community. The whole town would have been there. And it would have been a great shame to him. It wasn't like he could ring up Domino's and say, can I have a pizza and two Cokes? It would have brought great shame upon his family. Or the second reason would have been that maybe they were a little thirsty. Is that logical? That maybe they went through the barrels of wine just a little quickly. Okay. We don't know the reason. Either a shameful father or a thirsty wedding. I tend to think maybe they were thirsty. I don't know. Part of my guessing is the wedding's in Cana, which is kind of like saying, well, I don't know, Indiana. But do you have a place where there's a lot of rough people, people who don't go to church, kind of that neighborhood that if you live there? Like, I live in Aurora. Has anyone heard of Aurora? Right, you've heard of it, okay? Our church, uh, one of our church campuses is in Naperville. Naperville is not... Aurora, right? People in Naperville, when I told them I was moving to Aurora, were like, you're moving to the ghetto. They were scared, right? Like I expected like burning cars and overturned vehicles and a flash mob. But it's actually a really nice place to live. It just is predominantly Hispanic and African-American. I'm a minority. Do you have that place in Indiana? You don't have to say it. Could you nod your head? Think of that place. 
that isn't the cool place to live, that isn't the center of the town, isn't the place that everyone goes. And in a Jewish society where Jerusalem was the center, this place that was far from the center of church, Jesus is at a wedding with his mum and his mates and they run out of wine. His mum notices it, comes to him and says, hey, Jesus, uh, I think you should do something about this. And he has this God to and fro with it. Is it not my time yet? And then the mum says, just do whatever he says to the servants. And Jesus notices these six stone jars. Does anyone know what these stone jars are used for? They were used in ceremonial washing. So if you were a Jewish person, if you were religious, if you still held some sort of affinity to your religion, I come from Chicago now. I'm a, look at me, White Sox. I'm a true Chicagoan now. Been there two years. I love Chicago. The Bulls, the Bears. All right? I'm, I'm there as a missionary. I love it. Well, let me tell you, the amount of people that genuflect when they take communion, because they have a Catholic background. Chicago has a massive group of people who, uh, who have this kind of affinity to their Catholicism. And they might only go to Mass once a year, maybe twice a year. But they see themselves still as Catholic in some sort of way. And so if you were Jewish, even though you didn't live near Jerusalem, you didn't go regularly to the temple, what you were meant to do was take this water that would have been sanctified because it was in stone, cold, perfect jars. And you would wash yourself in an elaborate ceremony that would separate you from the dirty to the clean, from the righteous to the unrighteous, from the holy to the unholy, from the Gentile to the Jewish person. Well, could we just have a little vote? The jars were empty. So how many kind of really serious Jewish people were in the room? Not many. And by day four, they've run out of wine. Okay. There's a bit of a party going on in Cana. And the officials come forward. They say that Jesus' mother has said, we're meant to do whatever you say. And don't you think this is, you've got to realize, this is Jesus' first miracle. It's the first time he's showing his disciples that he is Jesus the Messiah. Don't you think this is a perfect opportunity for Jesus to start an AA meeting? Lean forward and say, okay, you stinking heathens. I've just been told there's no more wine and I've been asked to speak to the situation. You can all meet me at temple this Sunday. I'm running meetings. I'm the way, the truth, and the light. I have tapes and CDs at the back with t-shirts. WWW, I am the way. Couldn't he? We could have got up. He, he could have shamed the father. Now, so I've heard we've run out of wine. Let me give a little parenting course I got from Dr. Phil. You'll hear about him later on in the future. Got some notes for focus on the family. You are a terrible father, right? Let me give a little message about parenting. I mean, he could have done all sorts of things, couldn't he? Instead, what does Jesus do at a wedding in Cana that runs out of wine? He takes these religious symbols that separate those that are Christian and unchristian, those that are holy and unholy, those that are religious and unreligious. He takes the very symbol that divides the world and he says, fill them with water and take a cup and take it to the master of ceremonies. He doesn't say, and tell them that Jesus Christ sitting at the third table next to Mary, the young mum. That's me who did it. Here's my card. I'm doing a set of meetings later on. I may even walk on water. He doesn't make a big show about who he is. He says, fill these water jars. The very symbol of religiousness. 
give it to the master of ceremonies. And the master of ceremonies takes it to the father. And you know what he says? He says, oh, sir, you are a connoisseur. Oh, sir, I've done lots of weddings. Let me tell you, they drink the best barrels first. But not you, sir, not you. You, sir, have saved the best to last because the water had turned into wine. And not cheap wine, not the no-name brand wine, not the wine that you get on sale at Walmart or at Costco. No, this was the best wine. And it's not a sermon about drinking. It's a message of generosity. Jesus took the very symbols that divided the religious from the unreligious and he smashed them. He said, when I usher in the kingdom of God, when I come to help people find their way back to God, I'm not going to do it at the center of the church. I'm not going to do it where everyone comes and worships in the middle of the town where all the religious and righteous people are. I'm going to usher in the kingdom in a wedding at Cana with my mum and my mates. That is what the church is meant to do. I meet a lot of confused Christians who say to me, but I don't drink. No one ever said Jesus drank. In fact, they called him a glutton and a drunkard, and yet he never sinned. This is not about drinking. This is about proximity. Jesus was able to be among the most sinful, the furthest from God, and yet he never sinned. I meet Christians all the time who are confused about how to act around non-Christians. They act like Ned Flanders at weddings. You ever seen people who act like Ned Flanders? Sit there all kind of like as if they're depressed. And people are like, and then, and then they, they act like they're so uptight, they're so upset, they're so confused about should they, should they be here? What should they do? How should they act among non-Christians? And I think we've had some terrible teaching about how to act around people who are far from God. We kind of put the guilt on people as if, as if maybe they should, if they're a mechanic, they should tie the, the, the engine coils into a fish while they're fixing the person's car. See, look, I did a fish. This is, let me tell you about Jesus. In some sort of awkward way that makes people feel like you're a freak. Jesus was able to be himself with his mum and his mates in a wedding. And he was able to be the most generous and the most compassionate. Maybe he did save a father from shame. Maybe he did provide some quality wine for some pagans. But he did it in a way that honoured God so much that the Bible says his glory was revealed. This is my hope for you as a church that you could stand every day among non-Christians and and be the most generous, laugh the loudest, give the most, serve the most, be the most big-hearted, stretch out your hands and change the reality of their world in a way that brings glory to God. Well, how, how do we do that? Sometimes it feels like we're surrounded in oceans of darkness. How do we be salt and light without compromise? I had a friend of mine who, um, who in Melbourne has a passion for women, for young women. She wrestled with this topic just like I do. We would meet often 
her and her husband and my wife and I, we will share stories of how we were being salt and light in our dark areas. Our ministry was to the pub world of young adults and her ministry was to drug addicts and prostitutes in the city of Melbourne. It doesn't matter if it's homeless people or it's middle class or wealthy people in neighbourhoods. It doesn't matter what the situation is. The question is, how do you usher in the kingdom in generosity? Well, my friend Danielle, she has a heart for especially trafficked women, women that are sold into slavery. And she worked out that brothels, brothels, does that translate? Prostitute houses was the number one place that women are traded. Do you know that the trafficking of women is more profitable than the trafficking of drugs in your country? More money is made from the trafficking of people than drugs. She got a list of every legal brothel in my state, 400 there was, and she found out by putting herself on the, on the newsletter for the prostitution committee that managed those 400 legal brothels that for every one legal brothel there are four illegals. And that most of those illegal brothels trafficked women. And then her, she was a Salvation Army officer. And a bunch of beautiful elderly women and some young mums who love to bake. Who likes to bake here? Who's got a baking gift? They baked muffins all day. And then they got little cards made up called brothel chaplains. They put on their Salvation Army uniform and they started at the top of A... And they went and door knocked on every brothel in our state. The first brothel they door knocked on, a confused man opened the door. Uh, can, can, I, can I help you? You'd be a bit stunned if you saw 13 or 14 uh, blue rinsed, grey haired young women and young mums and elderly women holding baskets of muffins. Wouldn't you be a little confused? Can, can I help you? Hi! We're your chaplains! R- really? We've come to bring you muffins. Can we come in? Who's going to say no to Aunt Betty? Who's like 85 with the blue rinse, right? So they can sort of push their way into this brothel down the stairs into the basement where the women were waiting to begin their job. As the red light flicked on and on, they began to conversations with these women. They began to talk to one woman, a young girl, Carol. Carol said, well, what, what, what can you do for us? My friend Danielle said, well, we can do anything with the Salvation Army. Do you need help with housing, food, accommodation? But see, Danielle's like me. We're not just rotary. We want to usher in the kingdom in the name of Jesus. We want to see cities and neighborhoods transformed. And we want every Christian to see themselves as a called missionary, using their hands and feet and baking goods. And she said, I can pray for you. This young Carol said, Really? You can pray like now because I've got this curse that's over me. This God put, could, could you break that? Could you pray for that? And uh, my friend Danielle said, that's my specialty. She said, well, we, we can, do I have to make a booking? She said, I can fit you in right now. She pulled up a chair, sat Carol down, and she began to pray for another prostitute coming down the stairs. I said, what are you doing? She said, oh, she's breaking that curse over me. She said, do me too, do me too. So there's a young group of young mums and some, elderly, some beautiful elderly ladies laid their hands on this small group of prostitutes. The owner came in and said, what is going on? Well, our Grandma Betty is a champion. She jumped up, said, muffin, and took the owner away, began to harass him about Jesus. I kid you not, 
that owner dropped to his knees and gave his life to Jesus and closed that brothel. And they went after every brothel in our city. People say to me, we can't change the world. You can with one muffin and a group of filled with the Holy Spirit, elderly ladies and young mums. And you might say, well, that's just an extreme story for me. But you know what? It isn't just about prostitutes or about brothels. It's about you reaching out to your neighbor. It's about you saying, I am surrounded by Canaanites all the time. If your kids go to school, if you're involved in sport, if you're involved, if you pump gas somewhere, you are constantly sitting at wedding banquets and you don't realize it. You're constantly surrounded by non-Christians in all sorts of arenas of life. And they're waiting for you to usher in the kingdom of God. They're waiting for you to be generous in only the kind of spirit-led way that Jesus could lead you to be because he placed you in that street, not somebody else. He placed you in that family, not somebody else. He placed you in that job, in that workplace. And he doesn't need more Billy Grahams. He needs more mums and mechanics who will become filled with the Holy Spirit, who will look with different eyes when they're surrounded by people who are far from God and who will respond to the leading of the Holy Spirit and will bring in wine, will bring in muffins, will bring in babysitting, will bring in acts of service, who will listen to people's stories, put their hands around them and love them. When everyone else is criticizing. They're lifting up. When others are pulling down and destroying families, they're putting them back together. This is the role of the ecclesia, the local church. It is not a building. It is not a service. It is a group of people who have linked arms and said, I will give my life that the name of Jesus will be ushered in the places and spaces where it is void. Don't tell me You don't have a space, a wedding at Cana. You live in weddings all the time. We just travel in and out of them and don't realize it. When I moved my whole family from uh, from Australia to Chicago, we moved into Aurora. And, uh, you know, a month after we moved here, my son got leukemia. And it was probably the most devastating news I've ever ever received as a, a parent or as an adult. Um, you know, the possibility that my son could die of cancer was, it was just life-changing. And uh, he, he's doing okay. He's 18 months into treatment and God willing, will just continue to fight this disease. Um, he's actually not with me today because he's at the hospital um, at a benefit for other kids. They have a, a once a year, they get all the kids who got sick at the same time together. So my wife and my kids send their love to you. They'd normally be with me on every trip like this. But when we moved into Aurora, see, we live our life as if every place is a chance to proclaim the name of Jesus. And not just through sort of preaching on standing on some stage, but with our lives of generosity and kindness. And so we moved into a street, and the first thing we did was get get to know all of our neighbors. But one neighbor across the road, right in front of our house, his name was Dan. And Dan was just grumpy. Just one of those neighbors, you know, that you just think, gee, I wish you'd move. Does everyone have one of those neighbors or had one? Anyone ever been one of those neighbours? No, you should put your head up for that. You know, the day we moved in, the house that, we'd been, that we were moving into had been abandoned, for, had been empty for six months. And people kept um, driving on his lawn and then backing into our driveway. Did you say driveway? I was not sure what translates. 
to unload furniture. You see, we came here with 10 suitcases of clothes. That was it. We had not a stick of furniture. So people from the church were saying, here, have my couch, have my big TV. Please, no more big TVs. I could open a shop now with big TVs. You know those big ones that are really heavy? That weigh like 350 pounds. They killed my six-year-old. I found him under one with his little arms and legs. So people were delivering these things all day, you know. And uh, after the wall of TVs got delivered, we were, um, you know, we were just kind of outside. Kids are rolling around. We had about 50 people that we'd already got to know in our community. Well, Dan, he's had it. He's angry that every person had, dro- had driven on his lawn. And so he opens the front door, true story, and he says, Get off my grass! And then he slams the door. It's like a Grand Torino moment. A cultural reference there. And it just broke my heart. I am a shepherd. I love people. I'm kind of friendly. I mean, I'm cuddly. I'm purpose-built for cuddles. And I mean, I just, I was so sad because I got to know Bill and Jennifer and Jason and, and Lisa and, and uh, Tyrone and, and the Cambodian family on the corner, Lily and Michelle come play with my little six-year-old. And Dan would not have a bar of me. Every time he came outside, I'd wave to him, hey, Dan, and he'd do something else that I do not want to do in church because I want to be invited back. But it was not very nice. I'd be like, oh, that means something different in my country. No, I think it means the same. Every time I put my trash out, I'd see him put his trash out, so I'd run outside and put my trash out. Hey, Dan. He'd be like, this guy was mean. And I'm lying in bed. I was losing sleep over it. Have you ever lost sleep over these kind of relationships? Where you think, do I burn his house down? Do I ram his... No, I shouldn't think those things. But I'm like, this guy's grumpy. Could God just move him on? But God's trying to teach me to keep extending grace and generosity. One day in the middle of summer, actually exactly a year ago, he was getting his driveway retard. And he can't park in our street. He's a very sick child. That's why he was screaming at us, because the lights of every car were waking him up. As he was carrying his young daughter, Mia... We didn't have a car at the time. Someone had give us a car and it had blown up. So we were carless. So I said to him, Dan, park in my driveway. I don't have a car at the moment. And I kid you not, he put Mia inside and he grabbed a shovel. And I thought, okay, he's going to kill me now. <laughs> and we're like, there's no one else in the street. And I'm on my front step. And I'm like, Jesus, you can come now. I'm okay. I'm married, three kids. I'm happy. He's like, why would you say that? Because you have to park all the way down there and why don't you have a car? And he stepped forward. So I stepped forward. Well, our car blew up and it doesn't matter. Just park your car there, Dan. Don't be stubborn. He's like, really? And he stepped forward. I'm like, okay, he's going to hit me for sure. But I stepped forward. He's like, how do you, don't you have a sick kid? I'm like, yeah, my son's got leukemia. What what is that? What's that? Just park in the driveway, mate. And he's like, how's he doing? And then we're standing in the middle of the road. And I'm thinking, please, no cars come and don't let Dan kill me. And he says to me, my dad died of cancer. He begins to sob. I put my arm around big Dan. He tells me how he had to turn the life machines off on his father and how since then he's just felt like his world has been out of kilter. He's been able to tell nobody. He says, I'm so sorry I yelled at you. 
I kid you not, inside I'm like, yay. I'm like, that's all right. He's like, burn my truck anytime. You can have it. He has a truck just sitting there. And I'm like, Dan, it's fine. I said, can I pray with you? I prayed for him, his wife, Andrew, and his little daughter, Mia. We began a relationship. Fast forward three months. We had the snowstorm in Chicago. Drift of snow, four feet, covering my driveway. I wake up in the morning. I hear someone shoveling. It's my neighbor, Dan, shoveling my driveway out. And I can't tell you all the little things we've done. That's for God to know. But then Dan and I went and emptied as we spent the day together, shoveling our neighbor's driveway. And Dan has found his way back to God. He says to me, I've got to... I've got to connect with church. I've got to find a community like you have, Kim. You have people here all the time. Your house is filled with love. And I want that. Maybe God's going to open up brothels. Or maybe he just wants you to see your neighbor with different eyes. But you have to step into that world. You have to be willing to cross the street. You have to be willing to say, God, send me. Not to the center, but to the edge. Who can I see differently? And how can our family be the most generous, the most funny, the most filled with the Holy Spirit? I mean, have you ever really belly laughed? Put your hand up if you've ever really belly laughed. I mean, laugh so hard a bit of snot or a bit of pee came out. That is not sacrilegious. That is being real. I'm going to pray for you right now. I want you to hold the hands of somebody next to you. As I close in prayer, I want you to think about your street, your job, your school, where your kids go to school. Think about your family. Think about all these arenas of celebration where you've been conflicted. You thought maybe my presence is going to give permission. But let me tell you, presence does not mean permission. Proximity is being the presence of Jesus even though you disagree with what they do. Jesus was the presence of God. And he sent you to be his hands and feet. Can I pray for you? Close your eyes and and just think of that street. Think of that neighborhood. Think of that school. Think of something tangible you can leave today with. Ask God as I pray. Where do you send me? Father, I pray for this local church. I pray for every person who calls themselves part of this gathering of this church of Genesis. Father, I pray right now that you will fill them with the Holy Spirit. That they will get a vision for generosity in their neighborhood. They'll have a vision for generosity in their workplace. They'll have a vision for ideas to how to be generous to their family, to their school friends, to their kids' school friends, that you would unleash missional imagination. They will begin to dream God dreams about places that they have been withdrawn or quiet, that you were given the language and the license, the permission, because this is not a trendy new idea. This is your idea, that we would become passionate followers of you. And that we would look to represent you, not just at church services and buildings, but that we would represent you in the dark places, the places that most need light, the places that most need salt, that you have placed us there. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for having me in church this morning.